a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you are a first-time wrong thinker, I understand this could be a little bit uh, a little bit spooky. How far out in the weed are these guys? <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, the purpose of this show is uh, simply the acknowledgement that there is a battle going on right now for your mind. And it's not a matter of, I want to possess your mind. I want to occupy your mind. It's more a matter of, I want to try to persuade you that the best thing you and I can do, especially in times of crisis, which I think we could agree we live in times of crises, is to think clearly and independently about all the stuff going on around us. That means we're going to have to be willing to step outside of that, uh, that artificial construct of left versus right and Democrat versus Republican. And recognize that really the, the battles that matter, the, the things that really are at stake, come down to the individual and his or her natural rights versus the collective and whatever it is that the collective wants. So if you can start with that basic understanding, I think you're going to find some very fertile soil to grow your food for thought. But ultimately, what you think and what you do with the information that I share with you, that's up to you. I just try to find the best information I can and pass it along. And I've got some great stuff to share with you today. Our sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, GovernYourIncome.com, and we want to welcome SolarPatriots.com to the sponsorship family. You can check all of them out in today's show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. And it's, it's very, very simple. Just, you know, click on a link. It'll take you to that particular sponsor, and you can show them some love as you see fit. Well, let's dive right in. It's prob- I don't know. Those who know me best will probably think, wow, this, this makes a whole lot of sense. But I'm very excited to start today's show with a little discussion of stupidity. Now, in, in uh, reading this article by Corinne Pertil on the five universal laws of human stupidity, I felt smug at first. I felt like, okay, this is going to validate the view that there are a lot of stupid people out there and, you know, kind of feeling comfortable. And chances are pretty good. I'm not one of them. Well, after reading the article, uh, no, I'm convinced. I, I am <clears throat> one of the stupid people. Maybe not full time, but more often than I would like. And so I, I want to share her article with you on the five universal laws of human stupidity. And... This may seem like, uh, well, that's kind of a harsh word to throw around, but her, her point here is that we underestimate the stupid, and, and we do so at our own peril. So I guess if there's a lesson here, just uh, don't, you know, try not to be stupid. At least if you're going to be stupid, be stupid in a way where you are primarily the one at risk and not other people. Corrine Pertel says, in 1976, a professor of economic history at the University of California, Berkeley, published an essay outlining the fundamental laws of a force he perceived as humanity's greatest existential threat, that being stupidity. Stupid people, stupid people rather, Carlo M. Cipolla explained, 
share several identifying traits. Number one, they're abundant. Secondly, they are irrational. And they cause problems for others without apparent benefit to themselves, thereby lowering society's total well-being. Now, the Italian-born professor argued, there are no defenses against stupidity. Cipolla, who passed away in 2000, said the only way a society can avoid being crushed by the burden of its idiots is if the non-stupid work even harder to offset the losses of their stupid brethren. This this makes me think of the Mike Judge movie, Idiocracy, which I, I'm going to recommend if... if uh, If you can handle some satire, including some satire that may seem a little bit offensive on the surface, holy cow. It's it's one of the the funniest and best and most insightful movies around, but there's some pretty crass humor. Unfortunately, it is 100% on target. Anyway, back to the article. Let's take a look at Cipolla's five laws of human stupidity. Law number one. Always and inevitably, everyone underestimates the number of stupid individuals in circulation. No matter how many idiots you suspect yourself surrounded by, Cipolla wrote, you are invariably lowballing the total. And this problem is compounded by biased assumptions that certain people are intelligent based on superficial factors like their job, their education level, or other traits we believe to be exclusive of stupidity. But they aren't. Which takes us to law number two, and that is the probability that a certain person be stupid is independent of any other characteristic of that person. Cipolla posits stupidity is a variable that remains constant across all populations. Every category one can imagine, gender, race, nationality, education level, income, possesses a fixed percentage of stupid people. Now think about what that means. There are stupid college professors. There are stupid people at Davos and the UN General Assembly. There are stupid people in every nation on earth. How numerous are the stupid among us? Well, it's impossible to say. And any guess would almost certainly violate the first law. All right, law number three. A stupid person is a person who causes losses to another person or to a group of persons while himself deriving no gain and possibly incurring losses. Cipolla called this one the golden law of stupidity. A stupid person, according to The Economist, is one who causes problems for others without any clear benefit to himself. So like the uncle unable to stop himself from posting fake news articles to Facebook, stupid. The customer service representative who keeps you on the phone for an hour, hangs up on you twice, and somehow still manages to screw up your account, stupid. Now, this law also introduces three other phenotypes that Cipolla says coexist alongside stupidity. First, there's the intelligent person whose actions benefit both himself and others. Then there's the bandit who benefits himself at others' expense. And lastly, there's the helpless person whose actions enrich others at his own expense. There's a pretty cool graph that that illustrates this. Now, the non-stupid are a flawed an inconsistent bunch, says Cipolla. Sometimes we act intelligently, sometimes we're selfish bandits, sometimes we act helplessly and we're taken advantage of by others, and sometimes we're a bit of both. The stupid, in comparison, are paragons of consistency, acting at all times with unyielding idiocy. However, consistent stupidity is the only thing consistent about the stupid, and that's what makes stupid people so dangerous. 
Sapolo says, essentially, stupid people are dangerous and damaging because reasonable people find it difficult to imagine and understand unreasonable behavior. So an intelligent person may understand the logic of a bandit. The bandit's actions follow a pattern of rationality. Nasty rationality, if you like, but still rationality. The bandit wants a plus on his account since he's not intelligent enough to devise ways of obtaining the plus as well as providing you with a plus. He will produce his plus by causing the minus to appear on your account. Now, all of this is bad, but it's rational, and if you're rational, you can predict it. You can foresee a bandit's actions, his nasty maneuvers and ugly aspirations, and often you can build up your defenses. With a stupid person, all this is basically impossible, as explained by the third basic law. A stupid creature will harass you for no reason, for no advantage, without any plan or scheme, and at the most improbable times and places. You have no way of telling if, when, and how, and why the stupid creature attacks. And when confronted with a stupid individual... Well, you're completely at his mercy. All of which leads us to law number four. Non-stupid people always underestimate the damaging power of stupid individuals. In particular, non-stupid people constantly forget that all times and places and uh, and under any circumstances to deal and associate with stupid people always turns out to be a costly mistake. So we underestimate the stupid, we do it at our own peril. Which brings us to the fifth and final law, A stupid person is the most dangerous type of person. And it's corollary. A stupid person is more dangerous than a bandit. See, we can do nothing about the stupid. The difference between societies that collapse under the weight of their stupid citizens and those who transcend them are the makeup of the non-stupid. Those progressing in spite of their stupid possess a high proportion of people acting intelligently. Those who counterbalance the stupid's losses by bringing about gains for themselves and their fellows. Now, declining societies have about the same percentage of stupid people as successful ones, but they also have high percentages of helpless people and an alarming proliferation of bandits with overtones of stupidity. So, Sapola concludes, such change in the composition of the non-stupid population inevitably strengthens the destructive power of the stupid and it makes decline a certainty. And the country goes to hell. I think I've said the word stupid more times in the last few minutes than I have in the last 10 years. But I think this is a pretty valuable article. There's a link in the show notes. You should check this out for yourself. The graph is worth that click alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to uh, lifesavingfoods.com. One of our premier sponsors here and one that I think you would be well served to get to know a little bit better. Now, thankfully, I've included a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, so you can just click on it. Click on it. <laughs> Hello, clink. Can I clink? Yes, click on the link, and uh, you can go right to lifesavingfoods.com. I'm telling you that uh, the, the supply chain issues are probably the biggest thing concerning. I know there's a lot of political intrigue, but it's it's the idea that our supply chain has, well, we've known it has weaknesses. We know it has vulnerabilities, but when it comes to food, 
I don't think that many people appreciate what it takes to get food from the farm to your table. And I suspect that as, as these uh, supply chain, uh, you know, crises continue to mount and to increase, that's a lesson a lot of people are going to learn the hard way. Don't be one of those people. Check out lifesavingfood.com. See what they have to offer in terms of food storage. I mean, it doesn't take a lot, just some consistent effort, and you can build up a nice store of food that will be there when you need it. 25-year shelf life? Come on, this is, this is good stuff. Just go to the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, and uh, there you are. You can visit each of my sponsors there. You know, one of the toughest things that uh, any of us has to take on day, out, day in and day out is to remain rooted in reality. While so many people and institutions around us are in the process of detaching from it. I could give you some examples, but I think you probably get the idea. There are some things we're supposed to pretend are just good and normal, and, you know, nobody should be able to question it. And I don't know why that is, but it makes it very tough for a person who wants to live a reality-based existence. Well, I came across an article by a writer by the name of M.E. Boyd, with some very powerful insights. And and I love that, uh, I'll tell you what endeared me to the author of this article was the fact that uh, he's quoting uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of, one of my favorite thinkers of all time, and asks the question, has America become a realm beyond words? Now, this is reference to a Solzhenitsyn quote, not everything has a name. Some things lead us into a realm beyond words. And Emmy Boyd says, Even the most devoted wokesters in America today, whether true believers or camp followers, all know America is in a realm beyond words. In other words, it resembles the type of heightened exhilaration before one hits the ground in a moment of, or in the instant of, in the instant agony of sure death, kind of a Thelma and Louise moment. At such a time, and before our nation hits the ground, Boyd says we may want to revisit a complicated writer, loyal Russian and American visitor for almost 20 years, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is a man who loved his country, but not his country's tyranny. This is a man who embraced socialism and communism with his great mind and then turned on those ideologies once he saw them in practice. Stalin had him arrested and sent to labor camps in 1945. The the Soviet Union exiled him for his writing and publishing. Eventually, he ended up in Montpelier, Vermont. Solzhenitsyn was a complex, perhaps tortured soul. He tried his best to explain how both Russia and America got it wrong. And so what he had to say about American society in a 1978 commencement speech at Harvard University is worth noting. By the way, if you want to Google that speech, just Google a world split apart. It's it's remarkable. And it's remarkable because Solzhenitsyn gave the country a good dressing down. Okay, he didn't speak in platitudes. He actually called it as he saw it. And he was speaking from experience. This was as a warning from a friend, not just somebody ranting. And another thing, here's another reason you're wrong. He pointed out that America lacks civic courage. America's foreign foreign policy reflects weakness, cowardice, and a lack of manliness. Solzhenitsyn told us Americans have become materialistic, irreligious, place man at the center of the universe, and have the hubris to think that the Western social construct should be exported worldwide. 
Solzhenitsyn considered the American mass media to be nothing but a superficial purveyor of misinformation under the guise of freedom of the press. Now, i got to remind you, this was 45 years ago. I mean, this was 1978. He had some insights for sure. Solzhenitsyn said there is no such thing in America as freedom of the press. It is really freedom from a deep investigation. The reporting in America is superficial and hastily contrived. It creates mass prejudices, blindness, and self-delusion. He also said America has lost its Christian heritage and become more soulless. Its form of rational humanism emancipates people from their moral core and creates a type of poverty of the spirit that allows evil ideologies to enter the society and take hold. He saw the signs all around. There's a decline in the arts of America. There, is, there are no statesmen of quality in America. When the delusional and unrestrained don't get what they want, they loot and burn. We might add mob action for today's activists, even at weddings and in restrooms. Only a crowbar of horrific events can break open the minds of the deluded. A Thelma and Louise moment or moments that will destroy all. Solzhenitsyn would not recommend our society to the world. Now, Boyd points out here, this speech was given in 1978. Remember that. He was living in Vermont with his three sons and his second wife. Before he went back to live in Russia, he had educated his children at MIT and Harvard. Harvard. In his memoir of that time, Between Two Millstones, Book Two, Solzhenitsyn admitted that he admired the concepts he allowed himself to experience in America, although he kept mostly to himself. He admired the local nature of things here. He liked our, the idea of our rule of law and our fierce protection of liberty. He liked the New England sense of self-restraint. Solzhenitsyn warned that if we continued our moral decline and allowed socialism to replace our free enterprise system, that socialism of any type leads to a total destruction of the human spirit and to a leveling of mankind into death. In other words, he warned us that the path we are on will lead to a realm beyond words. His colleague, Igor Sharafovich, put it this way. Socialism's goal is to abolish private property. The family is the organic structure of society and all religion. So America's in the car at the edge of the cliff. The car is running. Will we gun the engine and fly off the edge to sure demise? Are there enough Americans with moral courage to take the keys away? Are there enough politicians to say no to both of the bills now before Congress that are intended to destroy our society, the harm of which cannot be reversed? Has any religious leader the faintest remembrance of our deeply rooted moral heritage that places God at the center of man's responsibility and is ever vigilant lest the old deluder lead us astray? Solzhenitsyn's warnings to America were not well received. His criticism of America was in part that we didn't understand or respect Mother Russia. In fact, Solzhenitsyn did not understand America completely either. His view that 18th century enlightenment separated America from God is not accurate. The Constitution of 1787 rejected theocracy, but acknowledged the importance of religion in the social structure by leaving religious matters, including the establishment of state churches, to each state. The founders never intended a wall of separation between individuals and God. What has separated Americans from God is materialism and relativism. Solzhenitsyn was right about that. In fact, Alexis de Tocqueville in 1831 said it succinctly. 
liberty regards religion as the divine source of its claims. It considers religion the safeguard of morality, and morality is the best security of law, and the surest pledge of the duration of freedom. Tocqueville also thought the invention of the township as another layer of local control was one of the great gifts to the art of statecraft. So M.E. Boyd says perhaps the civic courage we need now is best represented not by politicians and by statesmen, but by ordinary American parents trying to save their children in whose DNA lies the best American traits of strength and morals. They will turn off the engine of our self-inflicted inclination toward cultural suicide and wrap a firm but loving arm around Thelma and Louise until they regain their senses. Great stuff. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. So there's been a lot of talk about uh, some of the electoral victories that just took place, uh, Virginia being one of the big ones. You know, there, but it's it's not just limited to the Virginia gubernatorial race, where uh, Youngkin, I forget his first name, I'm terribly sorry, I'm just not into politicians, but uh, beat uh, the Clinton uh, Clinton prodigy uh, Terry McAuliffe, and, and you know it. It, it's very clear what fueled that controversy, what got people out to the polls, and what put Youngkin into the governor's seat was the clash between parents and government officials, bureaucrats, and educators who were claiming, look, we will tell your children what is best for them to learn, and you as parents really don't have a say in the matter. Because racism, and that's Apparently, the mantra that the media has doubled down on, I don't know why they don't get it. You know, the more you call people racist, the more likely you are to end up with Donald Trump as a president. That's what happened in 2016. You saw it. I saw it. But uh, but for some reason, there are those, the, the elites and those on the hard political left that just can't let it go. So anything that doesn't go their way, any whiff of disagreement, Boy, out comes the accusation of racism and, and you know, it's, it, keep playing that card. Hey, it's working really well for you. You know, that's, let's, uh, let's look at all the, uh, the new uh, gains made by the GOP across the country. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the GOP is the answer to everybody's prayers. But it is nice to see those in power, especially those who've been using that power oppressively or destructively, they just got a little reality check. And it's long overdue. And I think if, if they're the best possible spin I can put on what happened on election night is you saw very clear evidence that the people down to, to the community level are beginning to wake up to what is being done to them and to their kids by extension. And that's a good thing. Now... The battle between parents and bureaucrats, of course, being the deciding factor in many of those upsets that took place on election night this year. There's a principle that's at stake here. So let's take it out of the realm of politics where, where everything is just a power struggle. And let's talk about what is really at stake. A writer by the name of John Hersey makes a very strong case for replacing involuntary relationships with voluntary ones. 
And he points out a very valuable lesson that we've been taught thanks to the public school pandemonium. Namely, when governments abrogate parents' right to choose, they instigate conflict between parents and teachers. John Hersey says, On September 29th, the National School Boards Association asked President Biden to use the full power of the federal government against parents. Their offense? Disrupting school board meetings to protest mask mandates for their children and to question lessons tinged with identity politics. The letter signed by NSBA President Viola Garcia and Interim Executive Director and CEO Chip Slavin acknowledged that it's vital that public discourses be encouraged in a safe and open environment in which varying viewpoints can be offered in a peaceful manner. However, when referring to meeting disruptions across the country, it pulled no punches, as these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased. The classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. Oh, please, government, save us from these these wrong thinkers. So to meet the threat, the NSBA specifically, this is in their words, solicits the expertise and resources of the U.S. Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigation, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Secret Service, and its National Threat Assessment Center regarding the level of risk to public school children, educators, board members, and facilities and campuses. We also request the assistance of the U.S. Postal Inspection Service to intervene against threatening letters and cyberbullying attacks that have been transmitted to students, school board members, district administrators, and other educators. Now, John Hersey says, as justification for the use of such power, the NSBA stated that law enforcement officials in some jurisdictions need assistance and that students, school board members, and educators are susceptible to acts of violence affecting interstate commerce. Man, talk about, you know, every buzzword. There's got to be some way we can justify you coming in here and, and making these people stop questioning us. In response, members of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association voted unanimously to leave the National School Board Association saying the most recent national controversy surrounding a letter to President Biden suggesting that some parents should be considered domestic terrorists was the final straw. This misguided approach has made our work and that of many school boards more difficult. Further, attempting to solve the problems with a call for federal intervention is not the place to begin, nor a model for promoting greater civility and respect for the democratic process. Now, Ohio and Missouri have joined Pennsylvania in quitting the NSBA, Scores of other states have distanced themselves from the national group as well. So what specifically prompted this National School Board Association to seek such extreme recourse? Well, here's a sample. In September at Poway Unified School District in California, a small group of protesters forced their way into an office and, according to one report, not only prevented the board from doing the business of the school district, which serves nearly 36,000 students, but also prevented recognition of our hardworking teachers, classified employees of the year, and student representatives. Sarasota, Florida is home to some particularly contentious school board meetings. You're warned, no public assaults and no public attacks. You've been warned. The second time you are done, said school board vice chairman Jane Goodwin, after one man asked if all the board members had high school degrees. Goodwin silenced several parents and had them removed for disparaging comments, not only about school board members, but also about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 
A Board of Education meeting in Gwinnett County, Georgia, was disrupted when nearly 100 attendees refused to wear masks. And in Clark County, Nevada, a teacher wrapped up her comments on how to use COVID-19 relief money, saying that anyone who brought up communism during the comment period clearly didn't pay attention during their high school social studies class. This elicited shouts of Marxist from the audience, after which President Board Linda Cavazos forbade parents from commenting and asked police officers to remove anyone shouting out their comments. But domestic terrorists, really? I mean, to some extent, school boards are being prevented from doing important work. In California, a school board meeting had to be adjourned before the members could address a tax reduction plan with the potential to save taxpayers in the district more than a billion dollars. But even at their most extreme, these public displays of discontent definitely are not devolving to the sort of anarchy that requires a world-class surveillance state and military response. Compare parents' demonstrations and outbursts to the looting and rioting that erupted after George Floyd's death, for example. This mayhem did cause hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage and did overwhelm police forces. Yet popular sentiment opposed federal involvement via the National Guard. Indeed, even the NSBA has at least recognized the folly of its inflammatory rhetoric, apologizing to a member to member school boards for further alienating parents and increasing the strain and stress of an already tense situation. John Hersey says in the meantime, local school boards are taking matters into their own hands with the board in Sarasota, Florida, leading the way. Its members proposed a policy limiting parents' time for comment in reverse proportion to the number of parents who would like to speak. If there are between 1 and 10 speakers, each would get 3 minutes. Between 11 and 20 speakers, each would get 2 minutes. If there are more than 20, it drops to 60 seconds. Now imagine if a business adopted such a policy. We're experiencing higher-than-average call volumes. For this reason, your call will be limited to 1 minute. See, this sheds light on the fundamental problem rearing its ugly head in public education. It's public. People are forced to fund these government-run schools whether they're satisfied with them or not. And because public educators are not truly accountable to the parents they serve, they're not sufficiently incentivized to provide good service. Now, of course, parents who can afford to send their children... Uh, may send their children to... uh, can afford to send their children to private schools may do so, but that doesn't impact much on how public schools function, given that those same parents are still continued, they're forced to continue funding these public schools via their hard-earned tax dollars. They get whacked twice. So the real solution, as radical as it is, is to privatize public schools. Privatize them for all the same reasons that your local hardware store or dentist office is private. In all other sectors, Americans take it as common sense that when businesses compete, customers win. Well, the same thing is true of education. There's more to this John Hersey article. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments after the break. But, you know, I I know that uh, for some people that is just the most radical suggestion ever. What are you talking about? Privatize, separate school and state? But the answer is, yeah, that's how you do it, because you take coercion out of the equation. And you replace it with competition. Now, this is a dirty word to people who are collectivist in their thinking. We're supposed to just fall in line and do what those who know best tell us. I'd rather see if somebody has a better way of doing it before I do that. If it's all the same to you. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm sharing this article from John Hersey. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education, a marvelous resource for anybody who wants to stay informed. Very nonpartisan, very principled, steeped in the principles and practices of liberty. John Hersey is the author of this about how public school pandemonium is teaching a valuable lesson. And it's not that, you know, the damn libs need to be owned and, you know, the Republicans are finally going to save us from all this. It's more a matter of we have got to cultivate voluntary relationships as opposed to involuntary ones. And that can only happen through competition where you voluntarily are able to choose, hey, this is what serves me best. This is what serves my kid best. As opposed to, nope, the bureaucrats have decreed this is what you're going to do. Now make it so. So when businesses compete, customers win. The point here that John Hersey is making is that the same is true of education. That was the lesson learned by one-time socialist sympathizer James Tooley, who started his career teaching in Zimbabwe and championing public schools. Now, later, while he was working in India on an education commission for the World Bank, he observed something remarkable. The stunning thing about his ride from an upscale neighborhood in Hyderabad to the slums of its old city was that the private schools had not thinned out as we went from one of the poshest parts of town to the poorest. And although public schools in India are free and classes are taught by educators with government credentials, Even the poorest parents work hard to send their kids to private schools. Tooley wrote, I asked parents about the public schools. They were totally disparaging. Teachers partied at the schools, they said, or taught only one class out of six and treated the children like orphans. There was no question they wanted their children out of public schools. He recounted his journey, which he said has taken me to the battle-scarred longships of Somaliland, to the shanty towns built on stilts above the Lagos lagoons in Nigeria, to India again, to slums and villages across the country, to fishing villages, the length of the Ghanaian coastline, or shoreline rather, to the tin and cardboard huts of Africa's largest slums in Kenya, to remote rural villages in the poorest provinces of northwestern China, and back to Zimbabwe, to its soon-to-be bulldozed shanty towns. It's a journey that has opened my eyes. Now in his book, The Beautiful Tree, A Personal Journey into How the World's Poorest People Are Educating Themselves, Tooley details his transformation from public school promoter to private school advocate, exposing the corruption and bad incentives plaguing public schools the world over, alongside thriving private schools that provide children with far superior educational experiences and do so far more cost-effectively. So here's the bottom line. Markets are moral. John Hersey says, when governments abrogate parents' right to choose, they instigate conflict between parents and teachers. As Ayn Rand observed, persuasion ends where the gun begins. The single most important central fact about a free market, said economist uh, Milton Friedman, is that no exchange takes place unless both parties benefit. So the key to resolving disputes between parents and schools is not arming one side to the teeth against the other. It's replacing involuntary relationships with voluntary ones. 
When parents are free to vote with their feet and their dollars, they will flock to the schools that best satisfy their standards. Schools that don't will, instead of teaching, be taught a valuable lesson. Satisfy your customers or close your doors. The only reason they're immune from those market forces right now is because government is propping them up. Got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com so you can follow up on this. All right, one other thing that I wanted to touch on here. Um, one of the most difficult truths that we have to face in regards to the pandemic of the last almost two years that turned our world upside down is that we are most likely dealing with a man-made virus. And there's been some talk about this in some circles. You know, people are following it, but um, I would encourage you, don't let the, the memory of Dr. Fauci lying before Congress, lying before uh, questioning from Senator Rand Paul about gain-of-function research. It's been shown he lied. And his organization sent money to the Wuhan Virology Lab for gain-of-function research. And Raymond J. March, in an article for the American Institute for Economic Research, says, we need to make sure that there is greater scrutiny for government-funded science. This is the great lesson of that gain-of-function controversy. Raymond March says, from his National Geographic documentary to the children's book about his life, Dr. Anthony Fauci has certainly become a household name during the COVID-19 pandemic, but the reemergence of an alarming controversy has many calling for his arrest. More evidence of the NIH's involvement in funding gain-of-function research continues to surface, linking financial ties to highly controversial experiments. Now, gain-of-function research aims to genetically alter microorganisms to enhance certain biological properties. For example, recent gains-of-function research attempts to increase viruses' transmissibility. In this case, a document noting that experiments resulting in mutations of virus that can easily infect humans required further review, review rather, by the Department of Health and Human Services to secure further funding. And the further we dig, the clearer the link between government funding and gain-of-function research becomes. So these and other findings strongly contradict Dr. Fauci's statements made to Senator Rand Paul four months ago when he denied any NIH involvement in gain-of-function research. Taking Senator Paul's interrogation personally, Dr. Fauci scolded the senator, saying, you do not know what you're talking about, and if anyone here is lying, it's you. Well, now Senator Paul has claimed vindication and called for Dr. Fauci to be fired. So while America's doctor has some seeking a second opinion, many questions remain regarding gain-of-function research and its connection to the ongoing pandemic. And this includes things like, did Dr. Fauci knowingly lie about the NIH's role? What other involvement did the U.S. government have with these projects? Did funding gain-of-function research lead to the COVID-19 pandemic? Now, we may never have complete answers to these questions, but regardless, we can learn one clear lesson from this continuing saga. We must reevaluate government involvement in funding scientific research. In his underappreciated book, The Organization of Inquiry, economist Gordon Tullock explains how funding scientists can distort the scientific method. When scientists make a discovery, they rely heavily on the review and approval of their scientific peers to verify whether they're correct and how their discovery advances knowledge in other fields or helps benefit the public. 
Tulloch likens this process to the perfect laissez-faire. However, when scientists receive research funds from government, distortions in the priorities occur. First, scientists are encouraged to pursue research tied to political agendas rather than those encouraged within the scientific community or by private actors in the market. Second, feedback provided by the scientific community on the validity and implications of discovery become less important. Consequently, erroneous scientific discoveries stemming from public funding take longer to falsify and to remove from public use. Now, unfortunately, there are plenty of examples to, to support Tolick's theory. In his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, science writer Gary Tobbs reviews decades of scientific research casting doubt that a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet can prevent heart disease. Noting a large consensus that high-carb diets do not deter heart disease, and often lead to other health concerns, Tobbs argues the reason this dietary advice persists is because government funding bolsters this hypothesis, even as evidence against it proliferates. From 1936 until 1972, over 50,000 Americans were lobotomized, many against their wishes and some for non-medical reasons. Even with the American Medical Association denouncing the procedure in 1941, after about 30 of them were performed, public mental asylums continued to regularly use it. Now, Raymond March says, as I argue in my paper published in Research Policy, much of the lobotomy's overuse and prolonged popularity can be explained by incentives. Many state and federal asylums received federal funding to perform lobotomies, which also allowed asylum managers to increase the number of committed patients, which also increased their funding. Financial incentives overshadowed scientific consensus that the procedure was ineffective and harmful. So, not every failure of government-funded science is as pervasive as the high-carb diet, as ghastly as the lobotomy, or as controversial as the gain-of-function experiments. But the risk remains as long as government remains a major funding source for research. He says, as of 2013, government funding composed nearly half of basic scientific research weakening or divorcing a considerable amount of scientific work from the scrutiny of its peers. And the result is an overinvestment in haphazard and potentially harmful scientific work. And these results seem very replicable. Again, this is Raymond J. March from the American Institute for Economic Research. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Sign up. I'll send them to your email inbox every day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today as we revel in wrong think. Yep, it's all about challenging the narratives. And some may say, well, is this just about being a contrarian? Is this about disagreeing with whatever is being said by people in official positions? It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. Well, if they're saying something, it must be wrong. It's actually due to the fact that uh, there's quite a, quite a battle going on over reality. 
maybe you've noticed there are, there are people who insist you cannot say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 clearly is 5, as all of these government experts and these social workers have pointed out. You know, it's, it's 2 plus 2 is 5, and how dare you? <laughs> Off to the gulag. Well, we've got some fun stuff to talk about. In fact, we're going to talk about uh, news as propaganda to get things started. First of all, let me give a quick shout-out to my sponsors. They include SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. You can go to my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com, and uh, there's a nice link there to each one of those sponsors that will put you in touch with them. So it's it's hard to believe not so long ago, anyone who accused the legacy media of just being propagandist was treated pretty much as some kind of a conspiracy theorist. Well, you know, you're just, that's sour grapes. You just don't like the news, and so you think it's a big conspiracy. Well, the times have changed. Any person who really wants to think clearly and independently about what's going on about them, you know, the worst possible way to be informed is to consume a steady diet of legacy media pap. It's just not there. They're not there to tell you what really happened. They're there to manage the narrative on behalf of uh, those who pay the bills. And they do a marvelous job. I mean, I'm not going to lie. They're, they're very talented. They're, they're very uh, polished. But if truth is what matters, well, the, the sad news is you've got to be willing to dig in, get your hands dirty, and go find it for yourself. Got a great article here from Laura Dodsworth. This was uh, written on Substack. The news is being nudged. Now, she's talking specifically about the U.K., but please understand, this applies to us as well. The U.K. just happens to be leading out in this particular area. Laura Dodsworth says, well, she starts with the pro- with the definition of propaganda, which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as the systematic dissemination of information, especially in a biased or misleading way in order to promote a political cause or point of view. And Laura Dodsworth says, is the news still news when it's being nudged by the UK government's behavioral scientists? What? Yeah, she says, Sky announced this week that behavior change on climate can be driven by TV. And it released a video which opened with the lines, we cannot understate the urgency. But faced with issues of such enormity, what role can we play? See, it's not actually a question. They've already decided their role. Sky announced that it was collaborating, rather, with the Independent Behavioral Insights team. See, that sounds more palatable than collaborating with the government, doesn't it? But the Behavioral Insights team, or BIT, is one-third owned by the Cabinet Office and appears to be on permanent tenure at Downing Street. And so she asks... Can a company which is one-third owned by the government be fairly described as independent? BIT's report, The Power of TV, Nudging Viewers to Decarbonize Their Lifestyles, makes a number of startling admissions. Quote, Behavior change via broadcasting and traditional media has historically been aimed at improving public health, boosting gender equality, and reducing violence. Imagine the potential for emissions reductions if the same methods were used to encourage sustainable behaviors. Now, the key word here is historical. If you've ever suspected that social and political issues were being confected somewhat artificially in TV programming, 
Laura Dodsworth says, you're right. This is an admission of social engineering. According to a joint survey by Sky and BIT, 70% of people across Europe are willing to change their behavior to address the climate crisis. And 80% support TV broadcasters nudging viewers to think about the environment, whether that's through documentaries, advertising, or increasing the coverage of environmental issues in the news. See, climate policy is kind of a tricky nut to crack. Persuading us to have underperforming and expensive boilers, asking us to switch to insects for meat, stop taking foreign holidays and drive our cars less, she says that's going to be a hard sell. So the nudgers are going to use the telebox to persuade the recalcitrant masses. Now, the survey itself uses social conformity. Ah, you're supposed to think if 80% of people think TV programs should be used to nudge us, well, then that's what I think, too. Notoriously, however, there is a gap between what people say they want in surveys and what they actually want. The ultimate proof will be in behavior and ratings. So the report states that broadcasters and content creators have a unique opportunity to make a difference for the planet. Laura Dodsworth says, gee, I wonder if it, what difference it would make if Sky's CEO stopped commuting transatlantically by private jet. That's a fair question. According to the report, she says the British are unwilling to take supposedly high-impact actions, such as eating less meat and dairy, switching to electric vehicles, using public transport, and switching to green pensions. There's a nice chart in the story as well that illustrates this. She says the report is audaciously bossy about how broadcasters and content creators should change the British public's behavior. Advice such as frequency of exposure to green themes could be enhanced by building ecological beliefs and traits into core characters within a show so that green issues can be fluently raised time and time again. That sounds potentially tedious. So here's another way to look at it. You'll see fewer characters carelessly drinking from a plastic bottle. But you'll see more kids programming center on green issues to influence you as well as the kids to promote intergenerational spillover. Suggestions continue with a family could discuss reducing their waste in a comedy show. Now, making that funny is quite the gauntlet throw. News segments could explore barriers to acting green and share stories for overcoming them, which doesn't sound particularly newsworthy. An episode of drama could include references to buying an electric vehicle. And, of course... Characters should order vegan options in, or vegetarian options in restaurants. Plump the cushions, grab a cuppa, and get ready for the green themes in your favorite psy opera. I mean, soap opera. During COP26, the big meeting last week in Scotland, storylines are converging on the environment. Soap ratings have diminished over the years, and is it any wonder? People don't want to be preached to. Creativity cannot be programmed, and storytelling is an art. It's naive arrogance to believe that this sort of technocratic tinkering will engage viewers. We gravitate to good stories. And Laura Dodsworth says, Mercifully, BIT suggests that broadcasters avoid a negative tone and warns that fear-mongering, guilt-tripping, blaming, or preaching can be counterproductive. Huh, she says, I wonder if a certain book had an impact. Now, in addition... To Sky, another 11 major UK media brands, including the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, RTE, BritBox, and Discovery, have pledged to increase the amount and quality of their climate coverage. 
so expect the airwaves to be flooded with techniques suggested in the BIT report. And at the same time, expect very little media scrutiny of this astonishing collaboration between nudgers and newscasters. And in print and online, the BBC, The Guardian, The Times, and Financial Times have added specific climate sections to their news. Interesting. She says, whatever you believe about climate or COVID-19, or any other agenda for that matter, can any mental contortions justify the news being nudged? I think that's a fair question to ask. We would criticize such blatant propaganda if it happened in any other country, she says, and we should not tolerate it here. We should switch it off. And there, my friend, is the answer. Now, some would say, Brian, what you're suggesting is tantamount to telling people to stick their heads in the sand and just be ignorant. No, I think think this is called self-preservation. And the happiest decision I made a few years ago was to stop watching legacy media news. I encounter it from time to time, you know, as I'm traveling or something. I might see CNN on at the airport or something. But I don't feed my mind a steady diet of what uh, any mainstream sources are are offering. I'm willing to take a look. I'll thumb through the newspaper when I'm visiting my in-laws. I'll, you know, occasionally uh, glance at uh, stories that pop up on Twitter. But I don't give them any serious consideration. And frankly, I feel like I'm I'm better informed because of it. Look, if there's something that matters, if there's something I really want to know about, I will sit down and I'll do the homework myself. I will seek out the expert opinions that I feel are not agendized. I recommend maybe you try a similar approach. It really brings peace of mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to uh, follow up on something I talked about in the last segment, and that is uh, learning to think for yourself, learning to think like an expert, learning to trust your own ability to find and understand information. Look, I've, I've been at that point where, you know, I just want somebody to explain this to me and help me understand it. And I still will be that way on some things. You know, you want to talk about uh, blockchain technology or cryptocurrency Yeah, I'm not the guy. I'm not the expert on this. But I know some people who are remarkably well-informed. Not because they wear a lab coat or because they have a government uniform or because they're in a suit and tie and have uh, been elected to some particular office. They're people who have sat down and studied it out for themselves. And they're a great resource when I'm looking for answers to things like, you know, cryptocurrency and, and so forth. But I want to follow up on the idea that you can learn to think like an expert. I'm going to hearken back to, I'm trying to remember how far back, it was 2014. Paul Rosenberg wrote this essay, if you spend 30 minutes a day just doing this, listen to what he has to say. He says, Earl Nightingale researched and taught about success for decades, and he took his job seriously. His work is often forgotten now, but you can find it, if you can find it rather, it's definitely worth your time. Paul Rosenberg says it was very helpful to me. He says one of Earl's more interesting lessons was this. If you spend 30 minutes every day 
learning about one specific subject, you'll become a legitimate expert in six months. Now, I'm just kind of pausing here for a moment just to kind of give you a second to think about that. Really? 30 minutes every day learning about one specific subject, you can become a legitimate expert in six months? Paul Rosenberg says this is true, and I know it's true because I took Earl's advice and became an expert. Now, perhaps it'll take longer than six months for a difficult subject, but 30 minutes per day, if you actually use that time for serious study every day, that's a lot of focused time. So he describes how to do it. And he says, this is far easier than you might think, as long as you can make hard decisions and run your own life and refuse to live by the expectations of others. And that means you have to be able to say no. That means that you can accept the fact that others are going to be disappointed in you. You must be able to do what you think is right, regardless of their repeated objections. So he says, when I first did this, it involved not having lunch with the people I worked with. Instead, I went off on my own and read while eating. Now, some of my colleagues thought I was being rude or weird, but I did it anyway. Then when my coworkers went out to lunch, I went home. I smiled, explained that I didn't like drinking and that I had too much to do at home. And then I went home and read. Now, he says they shook their heads, but they soon stopped asking. So when the other guys go out to lunch, he says, sit by yourself and read. When they went, when they go out after work, he says, go home and study. And if friends or family don't like it, do it anyway. Be different. Assure them that there's no insult intended, but take whatever heat is required and then do what's best for you. Now, he says, you probably won't lose many friends over this, but if you do, so be it. Any friend who requires that you not change and grow is not a kind of friend that you need to keep. That's actually really good advice, too. So here's what Paul Rosenberg recommends on how to read. Just a few tips. First of all, he says, go for quality, not quantity. So forget about reading a certain number of pages per day. That's a mistake. Instead, he says, make sure you understand what you read. That's the only thing that matters. Don't just go through the motions. Stop and back up whenever you must. If you don't understand something, circle it and look it up at your first opportunity. Don't leave anything out. Because if you do, you're subverting your future learning. Fill in the gaps as you go, not later. You must understand why things work as they do. Do you understand what he's saying here? It's not enough to understand how they work. You must know why. You must know what interacts with the things you study and makes them act as they do. And once you understand that, you'll start becoming a real expert. Something else he recommends is always keep a pen and paper next to your book. Write down things you need to check. Write down other ideas that come up while reading. Write down ideas for using the things you're reading about. And then once you finish a book or a magazine or whatever, he says, review your notes and put everything of value into a file. Now, he says, I suggest you use your computer for this. And if you do this, he says, you'll become a legitimate expert at whatever you study. Special talents are not required for any of this. Genius is not required. You must first make your decision, then act and stay with it under pressure. 
So it's going to require persistence, but he offers the words of Calvin Coolidge to back this up. Press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing in the world is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And so Paul Rosenberg says, make good choices. Hold on to them regardless of pressure and push on. See, hard work pays, but you've, you've got to be willing to stick with it. And I think the hardest part, at least for me, was getting to a point where you actually start to trust your own thinking. And there's a difference between I trust my own thinking versus uh, I am never wrong and I, have, I always have the right answer for everything. Three of the most important words that you'll ever have in your vocabulary are the words, I don't know. And if you're ashamed to say those words, that's something you got to get past. Because you can never learn beyond where you are. You'll never ascend higher than you are right at this moment without saying, I don't know. And then being willing to go and dig and look and search out for what you need to know. Why is this so important in this time? I think it comes down to the fact that there is so much misinformation and disinformation out there. And let's face it, you know, the... The Internet has been a remarkable boon in terms of it puts all of the combined uh, knowledge of the world right there at our fingertips. I think there's very little that you, you couldn't figure out if you were able to just get online and start looking things up. But unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there as well, so you've got to be able to sort fact from fiction. And maybe you're not going to get it right. The first time you may find things that, well, that seems plausible and you adapt that as part of your uh, worldview only to learn that, hey, that was incomplete information or maybe it was just a few degrees off. So it's a process more than a destination, I guess, is what I'm pointing at. But if you're willing to consistently build your understanding, whatever the topic may be, have a really dear friend in southern Utah who uh, wanted to learn about uh, monetary policy. Wanted to learn about uh, monetary, uh, uh, you know, the, the battle of the dollar versus the, the yuan and, and so forth. And so he, he decided to dive in and do the research himself. He wanted to learn about gardening year-round. How to build a, a quality greenhouse or what do they call it? A wallapini where you can grow food year-round. And so he applied himself. And now he is definitely one of the premier experts in southern Utah on how to, how could you grow lettuce in the middle of winter? You talk to my friend Albert, and I promise you, he could show you how it's done. Not because he's some kind of a certified, was it, jet fuel genius like Sticks used to sing about, but because he is a, uh, he's a simple guy who understands the power of persistent study and determination to learn what he found most valuable. Same thing applies to you and me. You pick the subject, pay the price to understand it, and you can become an expert in a remarkably short amount of time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George. Strongly recommend that if you are in the market for a home, not just in the St. George or Southern Utah area, but anywhere within the state of Utah, you would be well advised to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Look, if you go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, there's actually an email link that will directly connect you to Heather. So I try to make it as simple as possible, but uh, please talk to her. At the very least, let her know that this advertising message reached your ears on this program. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, ridicule, just because uh, it's it's become such a ubiquitous part of uh, the political landscape today. And and I'm I'm sitting back and I have kind of mixed feelings about the whole uh, "Let's Go Brandon" thing. On the one hand, yes, it is definitely a euphemism for F. Joe Biden. And I don't think shouted profanity in public places is is a cool thing. As a teenager, I would have been laughing really hard about it. As an adult, it's like, okay, you know, we we don't need small-minded words to express small-minded sentiments. However, I do feel like ridicule has a place, and I think it can actually be a very powerful tool for the common man. Got an article here from Jeff Lewis. This was on AmericanThinker.com. They can't stand it when we ridicule them. And he says, uh, the, the beautiful thing about mockery here is it's almost impossible to fight back or to defend against, and it tends to infuriate those at whom it's aimed. So there are a lot of times where we feel like, man, I'm helpless. What can I do? What can I do when this politician is parading around, you know, and, and uh, you know, putting on their melodrama performance for the cameras? Well, the answer is you can always ridicule. It has a time and place, and there ain't nothing they can do about it except to sit there and make frustrated noises. Stop having fun! No fun allowed! Which kind of drives that ridicule even harder. Jeff Lewis says, I must admit it, I must come clean. I try turning myself over to the better angels of my nature, but I don't know if they will have any luck because I'm 100% prime time on board the Let's Go Brandon bandwagon. Now he says, stop and think. Ridicule is a potent weapon against one's adversaries. Everyone hates to be laughed at. Humiliation is one of the more common and universally effective ways to isolate someone or, alternatively, to persuade them to change their behavior. So for some, the simple act of wearing a t-shirt with Let's Go Brandon emblazoned on it is a nonverbal act of rebellion. Now for the left, Brandon is now a Paul Bunyan-sized mountain of a man who's taking a devastating axe to their agenda and their narrative with every t-shirt and meme ridiculing them in disastrously funny and effective ways. Like many other commentators have observed, Let's Go Brandon has its roots in Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. So it's kind of turning their own rules around on them. Saul Alinsky wrote, Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition, who then react to your advantage. So among some friends and acquaintances, Jeff Lewis says, I've noticed a reflexive, vigorous pushback against this phrase, mocking Joe Biden. They call it immature, 
and say mocking the president should have no place in our politics. Really, he says, after cleaning up the mess from spitting out my coffee, I respectfully but firmly remind them of what the country went through for the entirety of the Trump campaign and presidency. Now, their response has been, well, we need to do better. Or just because both sides do it doesn't mean it's right. Now, in some cases, that's true. But he says sometimes one's opponents must receive an ample portion and get a taste of what they've been dishing out. Also, he says, please pull the log out of your own eye before trying to remove the twig from mine. Jeff Lewis says, if you were talking to a very good friend or to our loved ones, we might want to refrain from going full Brandon. Their emotional response to the ridicule could be counterproductive to a courteous, rational, and reasoned discussion. He says, I would certainly never advocate for ruining family dinners or Thanksgiving. However, for run-of-the-mill, hate-America radicals who base their entire worldview on blind faith, feelings, and emotions, the punch of the justifiable ridicule might be effective. He says, let's go Brandon is a brand of ridicule we haven't seen in America for some time because it's based on objective reality. Namely, the utter failures of the installed regime and their one-party control of government. It's different from what we witnessed during the Trump presidency because their ridicule was based on concocted lies and their wholly biased and thus inaccurate perception. Completely detached from reality, like Adam Schiff, good example. We saw their ridicule for what it was, poison that destroyed everything it touched. He says, recall Alec Baldwin and nearly every Saturday Night Live opening skit ridiculing Donald Trump and all the late night show comics or hosts who, tr- whose Trump derangement saw them incapable of restraining themselves from poking fun and ridiculing all things Trump every single day from the president, his wife and first lady to his sons, daughters and extended family, the nightly anti-Trump litany, diatribe of falsehoods and gleeful Russia, 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 shot and fraud was the hallmark of nearly every cable news network. So Jeff Lewis says, I've been reading an increasing amount of commentary about the let's go Brandon cultural phenomenon. And he says, I think phenomenon is an accurate definition and description. Because for many, it was difficult to explain or understand how the original R-rated chant arose on its own. Surprisingly, as if from nowhere or from the ethereal network from which like-minded people discover, hey, there are many others just like me. It's remarkable that the chant was not just a single event and passing fancy. Instead, he says, it grew legs and quickly spread to other events across the nation. Most remarkably, those on the left and in state-controlled media took notice, so that either in an honest attempt to cover for NASCAR fans' behavior or to cover up the truth, Let's Go Brandon was born. Let's Go Brandon is now a universally understood taunt against the lying, corrupt, state-controlled establishment media, their lack of reporting the truth and what matters most to Americans, their misreporting and blatant bias, or the flat-out, bold-faced falsehoods they report as truth. Most Americans have had enough of the media's malpractice. That's why we don't listen to them anymore, about anything Let's Go Brandon is a proud, outstretched digital hand gesture to the overreach of an inept, unintelligent, inexperienced, but inexplicably cocky and arrogant mentally diminished senior citizen who's playing house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. 
and is playing disastrous games with America's most trusted institutions and her citizens. Most Americans cannot believe the rapid nine-month decline in their country, their quality of life, their country's international reputation and standing, and consequently their diminished security in a frightfully dangerous world. Let's Go Brandon is a hearty, throaty roar of defiance to the cabal that holds the powers of le- the levers of power rather that installed the current occupant of the Oval Office. Remember, they have an irresistible and nearly silent influence in nearly every arena. The government and its alphabet soup of omnipotent bureaucracies, those who are political activists and lobbyists who hold an inescapable grip on the dismal Potomac Swamp, The big corporations who long ago decided to go along and get along to get ahead of the competition, you know, having friends in high places. And the media, social media complex that not only controls the information we receive, but will also fact check into oblivion all who dare counter their carefully crafted and wargamed narrative. Jeff Lewis says, I recently read a commentary in American Greatness that described the uh, Let's Go Brandon as analogous to the uh, biblical Old Testament prophet Elijah mocking the priests of Baal. In the Old Testament, Baal was a Canaanite and Phoenician deity to which the ancient Israelites turned throughout their history instead of worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah. It's a brilliant analogy and could not more clearly describe our current situation or the disastrous effects of turning away from what we actually know works for a just and prosperous society to the bowel and false god of a cradle-to-grave socialist utopia that has never, does not now, nor will ever exist. Let's Go Brandon succinctly describes how wrong things are with the Joe Biden presidency. To paraphrase the declaration in the short nine-month history of the Biden administration, There's a long list of injuries, injustices, abuses, and usurpations, all for its goal of establishing absolute tyranny over the states and the citizens. Let's go, Brandon, is our modern-day Tea Party, he says. Best yet, he says it's an intervention with our more moderate Democrat voting relatives, friends, and neighbors so they can come to grips with what they've wrought on the country. They must all be gently carefully and truthfully led to repentance for having given our birthrights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to those who seek our destruction. So then, let's go, Brandon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, I, I appreciate your feedback, and if you will go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you have plenty of options to give me feedback. In fact, if you want to drop me a voicemail, there is a link right there beneath my sponsors where you can drop me a voicemail and tell me what's on your mind. Plenty of other ways, too. I do appreciate your feedback, and I appreciate those of you who hold my feet to the fire. I, I never will intentionally mislead you, but occasionally there are things I get wrong. So I'm not ashamed to be corrected. I don't want to be contributing to anybody's misinformation or uh, lack of understanding in the world. So if you see something that's out of step here, feel free to set me straight. I might just thank you for it. 
So I spent some time talking about uh, Let's Go Brandon. I want to follow up just a little bit more on this. This was uh, an article from Tim Black from Spiked Online. So this is from the UK. And this goes into a little bit of the detail behind Let's Go Brandon and the hysteria of the elites because it's not just a matter of, hey, that's just disrespectful. There are those who are portraying this as, well, it's a threat to American democracy. Really? Do tell. So in in way of some background, Tim Black reminds us that Brandon Brown had just won his first NASCAR race at the Talladega Super Speedway in Alabama, and the crowd were shouting something behind him. You can hear the chants from the crowd, said NBC sports reporter Kelly Stavast. Let's go, Brandon! Except the crowd wasn't shouting, let's go, Brandon. It was shouting, F Joe Biden. Now, that was a month ago. Since that time, let's go, Brandon has become a viral joke. A seemingly anodyne few words of encouragement hiding an insult aimed squarely at the president. Now, Biden's opponents are loving it. South Carolina Republican Jeff Duncan sported a Let's Go Brandon face mask at the Capitol. While Texas Senator Ted Cruz was caught posing with a Let's Go Brandon sign at the World Series. When Biden paid a visit to a building site in Chicago to push his vaccinate or test mandate, he was greeted by the gently encouraging three-word phrase. The chant has even been set to music. Adele's comeback single was finally booted off the top spot in the the iTunes chart by rapper Bryson Gray's Let's Go Brandon. So it really is everywhere. And of course, last week, an airline, a Southwest Airlines pilot even signed off his passenger address with a Let's Go Brandon, which makes a change to being told to check if you've got all your belongings. The popularity of the meme, says Tim Black, isn't that hard to understand especially among long-demonized Trump supporters. Firstly, it provides a mockery of that endless, loud-hailed, celeb-mouthed F. Trump that accompanied much of the previous president's time in office. Secondly, it emerged from what looked like an all-too-typical mainstream media attempt to airbrush out any criticism of our savior, Joe Biden. And thirdly, liberals find it really, really annoying. So as a result... The Let's Go Brandon meme has provoked rather a flurry of po-faced criticism from the liberal mainstream. The Associated Press treated the phrase as if understanding it required a Ph.D. in the hermeneutics of right-wing subculture, calling it conservative code for something far more vulgar and deeming it a slur. Dana Milbank, writing in the Washington Post, said that while half of America's leaders are trying to govern, the other half are hurling vulgarities. Another comment piece uh, claimed that those deploying the phrase are weaponizing the vulgar dehumanization of our entire democratic, that's with a small d, experiment. And Tim Black asks, can they hear themselves? They're talking about a bit of accidentally rhyming slang, not a far-right call to arms. Besides, he says, where exactly were all these self-appointed guardians of civility during Trump's fractious tenure? He was serenaded by F. Trump for nearly every day of his four years in power. No anti-Trump protest was complete without four-letter salutes to the Donald. Back then, bien pesant, liberals celebrated these F-bombs. I mean, at the 2018 Tony Awards, Robert De Niro memorably announced, I'm going to say one thing, F. Trump. He was given a standing ovation. Yet when Republican politicians or even an airline pilot say, let's go, Brandon, 
They're treated as if they pose a threat to the body politic. CNN political analyst Asha Rangappa went so far as to liken the pilot's sign-off to someone saying, Long live ISIS! Now, this prominent commentator apparently struggles with the distinction between being rude about Joe Biden and pledging allegiance to the Islamic State, between a juvenile wind-up and a political gesture in support of a genocidal regime. This shouldn't be difficult to grasp, says Tim Black. Insulting, rude language is part and parcel of political discourse. It has its place. Sure, insulting politicians won't advance political debate. After all, it's often swearing to the converted. But it won't end political debate either. And he says Biden's fan club really needs to get a grip. See, I maybe it's because I've, I've spent too much time reading and, and also watching the uh, Hunger Games trilogy of books. But I, uh, I kind of think this is this is the verbal version of the Mockingjay salute. If you remember from the books, when Katniss's friend Rue is killed, she defies the authorities. She she ignites that spirit of revolution and and defiance by offering that three fingered salute. She kisses the three fingers and holds them aloft to remember her friend Rue. It's funny too because. My friends and I have been using that uh, that mocking Jay salute ever since the the first movie came out. We've we've uh, you know used that uh, standing outside the gates at Area Fifty One. You know, hey, look, all the cameras are pointed our direction. Okay, well, let's give them the mocking Jay salute. There you go. And you know, it's not intended to. It's not like throwing Molotov cocktails at people. It's not like breaking things and burning stuff. But I really think that uh, we need to be able to communicate the level of disconnect to those who presume that they have the power to tell us everything that must be done. I think it's a good warning sign. I think it's more of a pressure relief valve. It's not the threat to democracy that they're treating it as, but um, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, some more serious crackdowns or people saying, well, that constitutes a threat. For crying out loud, there was an actual, I, I wish I was making this up. This, this sounds like something that Babylon B would report. But a mainstream reporter was very alarmed that an outfit out of, I think, South Carolina, Palmetto State Armory, whew, spent some money with these guys over the years, uh, Palmetto State Armory has a new engraved AR-15 lower. These aren't terribly expensive things. I mean, for 50 or 60 bucks, you can get the AR-15 lower. That's the part that counts as the firearm. That's the part that has to be bought through a through an FFL. But uh, on the side of it, uh, it says, let's go, Brandon. And the, uh, the f- firing positions for the uh, safety selector are F, Joe, and Biden. Now, I know it's 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 juvenile. Cuss words are crass, even under the best of circumstances. But at the same time, to treat that as a threat, this this reporter saw this and says, well, I've contacted the Secret Service. They had no comment. But this seems to me like this is a direct threat against the president's life. Really? Mockery is a direct threat against the president's life. Well, because it involved an AR-15, which, as we all know, is the most evil gun ever on the face of the earth. Or at least I think that's how how the thinking goes. Look, I'll be the first to admit, there there is a definite uh, lowbrow, 
bit of enjoyment that comes from seeing the the oh-so-important made uncomfortable. And that's the purpose of satire. That is the purpose of parody. And it's been going on for a long time. Satirists, J.P. Sears being a great example of this, South Park being a great example of it. Satirists and people who create parody enable us to laugh at those things that sometimes we need to laugh at, if nothing else, just to remind ourselves that, you know, we, we need to, to keep things in their proper perspective. Now, having said that, if I'm going to be serious about trying to change people's hearts and minds or about trying to affect them in a way that they want to make that change themselves, which is really the more productive approach, there's a much more simple formula. It involves no profanity. It involves no mockery. In fact, it doesn't involve letting a politician, um, you know, live in your head rent-free, whether his name is Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Here's the formula. Speak the truth with love to whomever you're speaking it. If they find offense or if they bow up and they get, uh, you know, aggressive, take the hits and keep on smiling, but lose the need to win the discussion with them. You're planting seeds. You're not trying to wholesale switch somebody's mind like it's a light switch. Speak the truth to them with love. Don't need to win the exchange. And just watch what happens when they're allowed to come to the truth at their own pace. I've seen it work, and I recommend it as the better approach. This is The Brian Hyde Show.